Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm a physiology professor and a nutritionist, and I'm a bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach, power lifter, run strength guild, and liftforhope.org. Awesome. Today, everybody, we have with us a neurophysiologist and a fitness author, and I'll leave some of the juicy tidbits uh, to Chad, but we have Chad Waterbury, and we're going to discuss some of the ways his um, training philosophies have developed over the years and his new book, of course, and, and whatnot. So, uh, Chad, can you just introduce yourself, and then we'll get into your origins in uh, lifting. Uh, sure, Lonnie. I'm happy to be here, and um, I, uh, I started lifting weights at, uh, when I was about 14 years old because I was uh, you know, a skinny, weak kid, and um, just became very passionate about the whole process, and then um, entered into uh, academics and started training, and uh, you know, and just ran with it. And you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Right now, did you get into academics and neurophys uh, because of your interest in neuromuscular function, because of your lifting, or was it some other route? No, I, I definitely got into. Um, neurophysiology because what I had done at the time, uh, before I went into grad school, I had two degrees. I had a degree in exercise science and I had a pre-med degree in human biology. And at that point, um, I knew I wanted to work with athletes. Um, but then there was a part of me that thought I might want to go into like orthopedics and medicine. So as I was looking into medical school and, um, seeing, uh, looking over the curriculum and things like that. Um, there's some other things going on, um, uh, in my life that I was studying and a lot of avenues kept pointing towards the nervous system. And uh, the nervous system is just absolutely fascinating to me because, you know, that's what drives, uh, force production. That's what drives movement. And when I looked in the medical school, I, it was, there was just a paucity of, um, of, uh, neuroscience, you know, in like an MD curriculum. So I thought, okay, I don't want to go that route. And um, that's when I sought out um, the University of Arizona because they had a really great physiology program. And uh, there's been some amazing people there. Um, Roger Anoka used to be there, used to be chair of the department and, you know, some amazing people. And um, then they had a spot for a neurophysiology-based study with Parkinson's patients. And I um, won that spot and that scholarship. And um that's when I, um, you know, really kind of ramped up my understanding of how the nervous system really controls movement and performance. Right. Now, did you um, comp- compete in any resistance-related sports when you were young and as you were growing up, or was it just a lifestyle thing or what? Well, as I said, um, like any skinny, tall, weak kid, you know, I wanted to be bigger and stronger. Unfortunately, I grew up in a town of 500 people in Illinois. And oh. uh, it was an extremely poor community, and we didn't have, like, any sports. The only sport we had was basketball. That was it. So I played basketball. 
And I would have loved to have played football. I would have loved to have done wrestling, you know, gymnastics, all this stuff. But, you know, can't change the fact that I was where I was. So, um, so, so you know, I, I liked basketball and enjoyed it, but I didn't get to partake in um, some of the other stuff I, I really wanted to do. So that's when I got into martial arts. And now I do a lot of gymnastics and all that. So I'm kind of playing catch-up. It's kind of flipped around. You know, most people do that when they're – when they're in their teens and stop in their thirties and I didn't get to do it in my teens and now I'm, you know, doing it in my thirties. Hey, nothing wrong with that. We, that's sort of been a theme off and on, on the, on the program here is, you know, there's nothing wrong with competing or getting serious as an adult. You know, society doesn't provide us with a lot of uh, avenues to pursue our interest in strength sports or muscle mass, or in your case, you know, neuro, neuromuscular function, um, with, you know, organized sports as adults. So, uh, yeah, you almost have to pursue that. So I think that's very cool that you're doing that. Uh, okay. So in general, then, um, you were interested. You went to school in neurophys. Um, were you ever drawn toward, um, sort of other aspects? I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is you are unique, I think, in that you study neurophysiology. Most people, in bodybuilding or uh, strength training, there's a lot of emphasis on nutrition, metabolism, uh, pure exercise physiology. Um, what was it that really sparked your interest about, you know, the nervous system itself? I mean, was it like a recovery kind of thing? Was it simply uh, activating, you know, peak force production? Uh, was there an event uh, you know what I'm saying, or or is it hard to put this? Was there no single precipitating event? No, there were there were a few different issues, and it all came down to what I was studying, um, you know, outside of school. Because uh, you know, much like you, Lonnie, um, you know, I'm very passionate about this, and I I sought out a lot of um, different um, medical physiology textbooks, and I really I when I came across the the principles of neuroscience, that really opened my eyes. I mean, that's that's the Bible. I mean, uh, Dr. Eric Kandel, a Nobel laureate, I mean, he's he's just absolutely phenomenal. And um, it just made sense to me. That, so that's kind of the stuff that I was reading outside of what I was required to read in college. And it just started to really make sense to me that over the decades, there's been just everyone just focusing on the muscle. On the muscle itself, you know, making it sore, you know, making it exhausted mm-hmm. and all that. And to me, it was like it didn't really make perfect sense because it's like, okay, we need to step back and see what's driving the muscle function. And that's the nervous system. And so that's uh, – there was some interesting research coming out on explosive force production and um, some new avenues that were opening up with um, imaging and things like that with the nervous system where it's uh, just – became my passion to just learn more about it. Okay. If I really want to learn how to make people bigger, stronger, and faster, to me, it makes much more sense to focus on the nervous system because that's what's driving it all. So that's what really uh, precipitated this whole thing. And then, as I said, then I um, looked into various programs and chose the University of Arizona. And it was just about the simple fact that I didn't understand why more people weren't, um, discussing or trying to understand the nervous system uh, more than there more than there was going on, you know, like 20 years ago, um, because, again, it's the driving force of all this. You know, it's 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 what determines how strong you are or your reaction time or whatever. So that's when I'm like, OK, I want to become an expert in it, whereas, 
you know, other people, and it's fine, would just, you know, study the skeletal muscle or do exercise physiology and all that. But to me, it was like, okay, it seems the nervous system is, is what's really, you know, the, the really powerful force here. And there just wasn't a lot of information about it. You know, when I was, uh, when I entered grad school, uh, in 2002, um, you know, there was just really some great information coming out on the, um, the, the role of the nervous system and in, in controlling um, force production and reaction times and all that. And um, it just, you know, really, really uh, piqued my interest. And, um, and so, so I, to answer your question, I mean, it was just the research and studying I was doing outside of what I was required that kept pointing towards the nervous system. And, and I was just absolutely fascinated by it. And that's what really, you know, drove me to become, you know, interested in and study it to a, to a deeper level, but, but you're right. I, I do have a different background than most people, um, than, than most of my colleagues. I guess that's what I was getting at, right? Because normally, uh, I think when it comes to bodybuilding circles, there isn't much focus on, uh, neurology in, in itself. I mean, you'll, you'll talk to strength coaches that are interested in neuromuscular coordination or training aspects, but not in actual neurophys, you know, which I think is very interesting. And I, I'm guilty. I mean, Although very much like you, my interest was uh, initially uh, participating in research outside of my major, got me more and more interested. But usually it's funny when, when I talk about muscle contractions in the classroom, it starts with cyclic AMP or with calcium. You know, it doesn't it doesn't back up to the wiring that initiates all of this. Um, exactly. That's like the end of the whole model. You know, it all ends with the motor <laughs> unit and um, and then what's taking place in the muscle. So. You know, you get to back up and look at, okay, what's driving that? What's sending the signal to that? And, um, you know, as my friend uh, Max Shank likes to say, and I use this all the time, there is no muscular. There's only neuromuscular. You can't have the muscle function without the nervous system. So to discuss the muscle system without the nervous system, in other words, to discuss anything but uh, the neuromuscular system, to me, just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, well, if you look back to some of those cross, you know, innervation studies, well, they'll get fiber type changes and things like that just because of, you know, artificially cross innervating, you know, muscles. I just think that's very interesting because, I mean, I've taken whole classes on muscle physiology and there wasn't a ton of nervous involvement with that. And like you said, if muscles are indeed the slave to the nervous system in many ways, you know, I mean, form follows function and, uh, yeah, we need to focus on it. So I think it's very cool. Yeah, yeah. A perfect example would be, um, you know, if uh, this is the example I give in my seminars, you know, Lonnie, if I tested your deadlift and let's say you could deadlift, um, let's say I, I was given a presentation and had you come up on stage and warmed you up and everything and test your deadlift. Let's say you could deadlift 500 pounds. And um, when, when, I, when we worked up to that 500 pounds, it was very clear that this 500 pounds was your true one rep max. I mean, it took everything you could muster to get that 500 pounds up. So we all agreed, you, me, everyone watching, that was your one rep max. Now, imagine I uh, pulled out a briefcase and opened up a briefcase that had a million dollars cash in it. And I said, okay, Lonnie, I'm going to put 50 more pounds on this bar. And if you lift it, you're going to get a million dollars cash. Do you think you'd be able to lift it? I think you would be able to lift it. 
So that's just a perfect example of, like you said, the muscles are a slave to the nervous system. You know, people under tetanus or people are drowning are extremely powerful because the nervous system, I mean, there's so much neural input to the muscles that um, your force production just goes to the roof. I mean, you can learn from this from people at the people like in the Coast Guard who have to rescue drowning victims, just how strong these relatively, you know, seemingly untrained, weak people are. So it's just like if you can find a way to ramp up the nervous system and not absolutely exhaust the person, then you're going to get much better results from your training. So, you know, it's the driving force. Have you have any of you guys seen the the Batman Rises movie? I just I just Uh, just watched it last. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it. It, you're making me think of this scene where he crawls out of the pit and he he doesn't take the rope with him. Right. You know. Yep. So his life depends on him making this monster jump. Exactly. You know. Exactly. I love yeah. that scene. That was a trip. Well, he, I I thought he left the rope because he was uh, leaving it for people to uh, come back behind behind him. Oh well, my take on that was like the little kid, little girl who got out before. Spoiler alert, everybody. <laughs> but like her, you know, he was putting it all on the line, so he had to make the jump or actually die. Yeah. I don't. Know. Yeah, that's you know, anyway, I, so you know the whole the whole concept behind the, the whole concept behind the Incredible Hulk is much the same thing, right? He's you know wants to t- tap into um, those reserve strengths that are normally dormant in most average people. So you know, but if he but the key that he found to unlock it is extreme emotion, you know, that triggered the, the whole ball of wax right. that eventually, you know, transformed into that. And so much so much of what we do, I think, in bodybuilding and in powerlifting and academically is a focus on either peripheral tissues, you know, or maybe endocrinology, you know, circulating messages. Uh, but not necessarily just the hardwiring itself. I mean, we sometimes I think we forget that, you know, this stuff starts in the motor cortex and, you know, or maybe, eat, well, you can even argue um, from input into the motor cortex. But anyway, the point being is I'm not a neurophysiologist. I'm not going to – I'm going to lay down before I hurt myself. The point being is, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is central drive, and it's not just a peripheral n- notion like we so often focus on, especially in bodybuilding. Um, okay. No, yeah, but I'm, having said – I was just going to oh, add go something. Ahead. I mean, just to bring it back to – I mean, you see it anytime if you go to a strength sports meet. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, they call it meat magic. People are like 10% stronger. You get in front of that crowd. You didn't, you know, muscularly, you did not get 10% stronger by walking in that building. You know, your endorphins are jacked up. Your nervous system is jacked up. And all of a sudden, what what was heavy before is easy because, you know, you're in front of a crowd and, you know, you, know, you, see, yeah. you see it time and time again. Well, yeah, I think there's 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 several stages prior to the muscle from the neuromuscular junction to, you know, um, you know, the the different connections down the spine oh, yeah. into the actual brain itself, you know, and like you said, like Rob is alluding to, the emotion is a huge part of this. You know, I, I had a martial arts professor once. Uh, he was a professor, but he's also my teacher in Taekwondo. And he used, I remember he said something that I just disagree with very strongly. Once he, he was talking about powerlifting, and he's like, Lana, you don't have to be Mr. This or Mr. That. And he said, for example, uh, when you walk up to a bar to deadlift it, you know, if, if for example, with powerlifting, simply say, lift because you must and i thought you know you, you know, he's like you don't need to scrunch up your face and scream and all this grotesqueness and i'm like well <laughs> no you kind of do yeah. <laughs> at least i do yeah. um because it's it's an attempt to try to get as much basically self-stimulation as possible i mean oh, yeah. you know smelling salts whatever you know well, yeah. you know music music you know revs up a lot of people up look at Absolutely. i mean the, the, the studies you're doing on caffeine 
Caffeine's not doing anything to the muscle. Yeah, well, <laughs> both. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Chad, you were going to say something? Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. Just saying lift because you must, it doesn't do enough to uh, activate the sympathetic nervous system. I mean, there has to be – I'd hate to turn this into a crazy, morbid discussion, but, you know, Lonnie, you're talking about smelling salts and things like that, and they certainly help. But I'll tell you, if you were in a powerlifting meet and um, – you know, I had a chainsaw, you know, that I was cranking up next to you and said, okay, Lonnie, if uh, you don't lift uh, 20% more than you ever have, I'm going to cut off both your legs, you would probably <laughs> be able to lift 20% more. It's, you know, it's yeah, that. Right. Again, it goes back to, you know, people who are, uh, you know, the fear of death or drowning or whatever, you know, yeah. the more extreme it is, the more powerful it is to your muscles. But, of course, you know, we can't do that. You know, it's extremely draining to do that. So yeah. what I, you know, tried to figure out is, what can we do with our sets and reps and exercises to maximize motor unit recruitment? Because the first key point I want to say here is if you're training to get bigger and stronger, the overriding goal of every single rep, of every single set, of every single exercise is to recruit as many motor units as possible. Yeah. Nothing is more important than that. So You know, this is – You know what? An interesting thing that I just wanted to interject here is yesterday I was at the gym um, doing a, a session for the first one in a week because I was sick again, um, and I was just doing threes, um, you know, sub way sub-maximal threes, but um, as it turns out, a, guy, a fellow that was there that I had never met before that I had come over and give me a lift on the bench, he, uh, he told me after I'd, I had done one of my sets of three, that, uh, oh, you know, you, you should, it's clear that you can do a whole lot more reps, so you should do more because you're not even, you know, because the first three aren't even doing anything. And I had to explain to him the whole difference between, you know, what he had been led to believe as far as, you know, like, I mean, and certainly the focus of what he was after was just, you know, muscle hypertrophy solely. So I had to explain to him the whole concept of, you know, motor recruitment and, you know, how, right. you know, whether it's three or ten, you know, it's basically the force generation and how you apply it. So, you know, it's specific to what you want to do. So it's amazing how, and I've discussed this many times on the show, how certainly in North America and in a lot of parts of the world, the whole hypertrophy thing has kind of overridden any kind of concept that goes beyond just what it is to fatigue a muscle and hopefully make it grow, you know? Well, it's like we've said before in weeks past, I mean, well, months past, that, you know, you're talking about two things. Um an engine, you know, the muscle tissue, and then the wiring, if you will, that ignites that engine, you know, that tells that engine it's go time. And these are the two things that's going to lead to, you know, a stronger person. You know, But I, I agree with what you're saying, Rob. It's funny to, because to me, I know a lot of strength coaches, they focus so much on conditioning and agility that I think they've all, they don't focus enough on hypertrophy. But then when you look at an average gym and you look at a lot of personal trainers, all they focus on is per, is the muscle. You know, trash that muscle. Rob, why did you stop? You know, you're, you're, are you a quitter? And, you, and, you're, and you're thinking, no. Well, yeah. It's, you're it's, looking, you know, you're misunderstanding. The right? whole idea, you know, from what this guy was saying is the whole, that whole idea, right? Like, unless you're completely collapsing yourself from fatigue and, making the muscle completely like just buckle under the eventual, you know, fatigue of, of, you know, multiple repetitions that you're somehow not, you know, working towards an athletic, you know, improvement end. 
You know, just again, and I know what you're saying too, people also go the opposite way. Certainly they do. And I, I think that's a lot of the advent of MMA has brought, brought that through too, right? Where guys like you're saying, Lonnie, go too far the other way now, right? The whole thing where they're not focusing enough on trying to, you know, get a bigger engine, i.e., you know, the muscle and the, you know, the muscular structure of the body. But it, it kind of goes both ways. And we've talked about this so many times on this show that people don't understand that you kind of need to, you know, look specifically to what you're trying to go for, but in the end, certainly a, a measure of each in, in whatever percentage it might, you know, hold for the specificity of what you're going for, you have to look at that. You can't just ignore both. You can't ignore the engine and you can't ignore the, like you say, the ignition system or the fuel injection system or however you want to, you know, define that. Exactly. Now, let me bring that this back to Chad before we go to break here quickly. Uh, Chad, what led you to... Um, with the schooling and the personal interest, um, what got you into doing as much writing as you do? Because you, you've written multiple books, right? Right. Yep. I uh, wrote my first book was uh, self-published. It was a muscle revolution. And then um, for Rodale and Men's Health, I wrote a book called Huge in a Hurry. And um, I actually started writing back in 2001 for uh, T Nation, T Mag at the time, and uh, Men's Fitness. It was a first two places I started writing and I just always enjoyed writing I don't know it's just there's something about it, it keeps my mind sharp and I, I just enjoy it so um, that's that's pretty much why I mean in the beginning I'm, I wrote a lot more then than I do now because now I'm so busy with with so many other elements of my business but um, I just enjoy writing and it, I think it was something that I was relatively decent at and um, you know I just it's the only way you can really get your message out to a larger audience, well, now we have podcasts and great things like this. But at the time, you know, in 2001, it was just if you didn't know how to write, if you couldn't get your point across, if you couldn't, you know, make a make a clear case for what it was that you're trying to say, then, you know, you weren't going to get very far. So right. I just really uh, well, I can tell you writing. I know you have um, enough academic background, certainly, to recognize that the concept of uh, impact factor, you know, so someone, uh, a, a researcher will write an article and look at its impact factor. Uh, and the truth is writing for something like T Nation or uh, your own books. I mean, suddenly you're reaching thousands of people instead of just dozens in a classroom, like as a professor, or maybe dozens to hundreds who are, you know, who are going to read a neurophysiology paper, let's say that you publish in an academic journal. So the impact becomes very huge, and um, I think that's sort of a natural outgrowth, right? For, as somebody be, gains expertise in something academically and experientially, you know, I mean, I still publish in science journals uh, because the concept of peer review, I think, is important, you know, add to human knowledge base, all that sort of thing. But when it comes to impact, the, you know, the kind of books that um, that Chad's writing and that people in the industry with a, with a background um, – you know, it's huge. Uh, the impact is just simply much, much bigger. And honestly, I think there's probably a lot of professors who don't want to hear that. They think, oh, if it's not in a, a science journal, you know, then I don't want to hear it. But, you know, when it's written rationally and it, there's references and all those sorts of things, um, you know, it, it, it reaches a ton of people. So it's it's worth it in that sense. Yeah, I tell aspiring personal trainers all the time when they ask me for advice, it's like, you know, how do I get better known in this field? And, you know, how can I increase my business? And I always tell them, I said, you have to write or you have to find someone who can write for you or find a great editor or something if you're not a great writer because yeah. that's the key. 
It doesn't matter if you've got the best training principles in the world. If you're at the local gym working with your 10 clients and only they know about it, you're not going to get very far. And how you reach a larger audience is you have to learn to write well or you have to learn to speak well and give presentations. So uh, it's a really important factor for building any personal trainer's business. So anyone out there listening, um, you know, you have to learn to write well. Even just on your blog or trying to get published somewhere, you know, read uh, Strunk and White's The Elements, um, The Elements of Style. That's the only book you need. And study that, memorize it, and hmm. practice, practice, practice. And, uh, you know, anyone can be a decent writer if you really adhere to the principles in that book. All right. Well, I will say this, too. Get get yourself something to say first. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, yes, that goes. have the expertise, you know, because Phil and I and Rob, we, we often <laughs> sort of laugh about, you know, there's all these 20-year-old experts uh, out there. You know, they, they learn just enough to hurt themselves, and suddenly they're writing blogs and, and giving, instructing people in the gym. I even heard a guy in the gym recently, and he's like, oh, I could set up a program for you. And he's talking to this other guy, and I just thought, oh, man, blind leading the blind. You know, of course, I didn't say anything. Well, but anyway, yeah, have something to say is all I'm saying. Wouldn't you say, though, as well, I mean, I've found it true with myself when I finally started writing more. Uh, it helps you clarify your own thoughts in your head if you actually yeah. sit down and write it down. I mean, it helps you because you get so much crap going on. If you actually sit down and write up, you know, 10,000 word essay on it. It helps you clarify your own thoughts, even if you're writing just for yourself. Um, in it's a true. journal. And, I mean. Yes. And like Chad said, too, I mean, not only does it, does it help you sort of think through things in, in a thought experiment sort of way, but it keeps you sharp in general. Yeah. When it comes to biology, like if I write something or Chad writes something, then, um, you know what, there's like 1,500 new papers on, on the National Library of Medicine every day. Um, and so it keeps you up on the field. And when yeah. you write articles that are evidence-based uh, and they're not merely your own opinion, um, you know, you stay sharp. So it's yeah. just a good thing. Yeah, another piece of advice I like to give to um, aspiring trainers or coaches out there is write the article. Let's say it's four or five pages long. Okay, you write it in Microsoft Word, it's four or five pages long, double-spaced. And then I tell them, okay, I want you to put all of that in two paragraphs. Because the hardest thing in the world to do when it comes to writing is to be concise and clear. Like one of the one of the one of the statements I love is is that statement. Sorry, this letter is so long, but I didn't have time to write you a shorter one. You know, it's <laughs> right. it's, it's really tough. I mean, you got to get your point across very quickly. You have to be clear and concise, and that's what uh, you know. My friend Pavel Satsling, he's one of the best at it, and Marty Gallagher is another one. Those two guys, uh-huh. holy cow. Yeah. The um, the elements of style book that I mentioned before that will really help. It will help uh, take out any unnecessary words and get your point across very <laughs> clearly. And uh, the last thing, like you said, that Lonnie, be sure you have something important to say. Uh, I'll say another piece of advice would be to do uh, a couple years ago when Brett Contreras came out with um, his glute training article and totally. Um, I think it's called the truth about glute training or something like that. But he, he, that was his first kind of main article and he did it perfectly because the advice I'll give to uh, people out there is what is it that you think people are doing wrong and how can they fix it? That's the question you have to answer. And what he did was he had a bunch of research, probably more than anyone else 
on uh, glute activation with various exercises. He tested it in the lab, and he came along and said, look, all you guys who think you know how to train the glutes, you uh, really aren't doing it correctly, and here's how you can do it correctly. And I can say this because I've tested it in the lab. So there's a perfect model of what you can do. Uh, because you're right, Lonnie, you just can't have someone who gets some great idea in, in their own head and just starts writing about it and thinks it's, you know, the uh, the, the future of, of training. You know, there has to be some type of credibility to go along with it. But, you know, it's it's all about figuring out what what are people doing wrong? What's the dogma? What's everyone out there saying? Like, you know, the three sets of 10, you know, and I said, well, you know, 10 sets of three would be better for this reason. I think three sets of 10 is, is, is not necessarily wrong, but too many people are doing it too often. And here's why 10 sets of three should be better. And that was, you know, a very popular article of mine too. So that's the piece of advice I would give to the listeners. Awesome. Okay. I'll tell you what, everybody, we are going to go to break here briefly. When we come back, we're going to dive into the, um, the bread and butter of Chad's book on high frequency training. Uh, we got some questions for him and we'll have a discussion about that. So we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, We'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Hello, Iron Radio listeners. This is Dr. Lowry. I just want to offer an update on the Protein and Resistance Exercise book that you hear about in ads at the end of the show. The publisher and I realize that the textbooks have become expensive. This one's $99. So individual electronic chapters have been made available for $20. US As with Iron Radio, my primary drive here is to get valid, reliable information into the hands of fellow lifters. So if you simply Google CRC Press Protein, you'll find the page where the book is sold. By clicking on ebook purchase at the right, you'll be taken to a page with free introductory parts of the book, as well as each chapter in electronic PDF format. There's also links uh, to other sources in this version. So whether you're interested in an academic heavy hitter like Dr. Peter Lemon sharing protein's history and strength training, or you're a biochem nerd like me and you want to just look at chapter 2 on protein synthesis and breakdown, or if you want to cut to the chase and get to a chapter on using protein weight control or case studies, you can now do so for just 20 bucks. So please check out CRC Press Protein and see which chapter topic may interest you. Thanks. Weekly Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org 
and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Welcome back, everybody. It's uh, Lonnie and Phil and Rob and Chad. We have Chad Waterbury, a neurophysiologist um, and fitness expert with a new book. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about is aspects of, of his book, uh, not just in a commercial way, of course, but in an educational way. And the book is, uh, really deals with high-frequency training. And when we went to break, uh, Chad was just mentioning about doing uh, at the time what seemed like radical things, like instead of three sets of ten, what about ten sets of three? Um, and maybe equally radical, what about workouts that are – brief and frequent instead of very infrequent and truly work out, right? Like I remember uh, Charles Staley, I used to hear him say, every time you train, it shouldn't be a workout, meaning you're exhausting yourself till you're out of gas, you're out of everything. Um, so anyway, th- that's kind of what I want to talk about here. Uh, so the first thing I'd, I'll have you do, Chad, is just define HFT for the listeners. Okay, so high-frequency training, or HFT is the acronym we'll use from now on. Um, I define it as training a muscle group or movement four or more times per week. The reason is because if you look at virtually any uh, newsstand in muscle magazine, or even look at typical exercise science research, most of the time they're doing a movement or training a muscle group two or three times per week. Uh, it's rare to see it four or five, six times per week. It's rare to see, uh, you know, a study on the squat being performed five times per week. So I define high-frequency training then as four or more times per week. It's as simple as that. Okay, per muscle group. Per muscle right. group, per movement. Yep, it can yeah, be okay, however yeah. you want to look at it. Okay, so uh, one of my first questions is um, – now, well, let me back up. So if you're doing it that often, obviously there'd be a, a massive overtraining risk if you w- truly worked out to the point that you were out of everything, out of effort, out of gas. Um, you know, you're training at a very high intensity, meaning, you know, percent of your one rep max. Um, can you maybe ballpark some, some features of HFT? Like what percent range are we talking about as far as uh, the lifts? Uh, the duration of each session, things like that? Yes, uh, that is an excellent question because the key to having success on HFT is to, as I like to say, start by doing less than you think you need in a single workout and have a logical, systematic way to gradually build up the volume or the intensity and that's what I cover in my book because how I build that up, it varies. It depends on where you're starting. It depends on what exercise it is. Um, I will say that there are certain exercises that don't correspond with, with HFT, and that would be um, basically heavy full body lifts because it's too draining on the nervous system. There's too much risk to your discs, things like that. So okay. let's just, to keep the conversation as simple as possible, let's focus on the upper body first. So let's take um, the pull-up or the push-up as an example. Uh, we'll just stick with the pull-up. Um, that's an exercise that, you know, even if you worked up to a high intensity, if we're just talking a bodyweight pull-up, 
it's not extremely draining to your nervous system. You know, it's definitely challenging, but it's not like working up to a max of the, of the deadlift. So no. the first thing I had to do with HFT was to have the correct exercises put in there because, as I said, not every exercise will work. And what I recommend is that you shoot for a target number of reps per day with an exercise and just avoid failure. You know, try to have it be, you know, relatively easy sets. This is just at first. Um, so, for instance, let's say a guy wanted to build his arms and, uh, you know, build his biceps and build his upper back and, you know, would like to be able to do more pull-ups. I might have him start with um, 50 total pull-ups per day. And so he'll get, um, hopefully he'll be, you know, he'll have access to some type of pull-up bar. You know, he can buy one of those doorway things, you know, for his house or whatever. And my first piece of advice is to just do 50 pull-ups and spread it out through the day as much as possible. You could do two mini workouts. You could do, you know, you could do 10 sets of five, you know, on the hour. You know, it just depends on what, what's available to you. But the main thing is that you keep the intensity at a moderate level, like on a scale of um, seven to eight. Okay, so by the end of the set, you're on a scale of, or you're, you're on a rating of like seven to eight on a scale of one to ten. All right? So we're staying away from failure um, each set should be relatively brief, you know, just knock out two or three reps here and there and just shoot for a target number of reps per day. And then from there, you're going to, in, in the case of the pull-up, you'll do it again the next day. And I'll have you add a rep. So if you started with 50 reps, then you'll do 51 reps and then 52 reps. And I'll tell you, what's going to happen is in the first few days, you're going to be sore. You're going to feel fatigued. You're going to feel like you might be getting weaker. Um, because your body can't uh, catch up with the recovery. Even though all the sets were relatively low in intensity and you spread out the sets and reps, but this is the design of it. This is what I want to happen. The human body is an extremely malleable machine, and it will adapt to whatever demand is placed on it. And my uh, assertion is the, the reason why people aren't growing faster is because they don't get enough workouts in for that laggy muscle group or whatever that muscle group is. And the only way you're going to get the body to recover faster is to force it to recover faster. But you can't be crazy and just start doing, you know, high-intensity workouts every day and all this. There has to be a logical approach to it. So with high-frequency training, it's not just about training every muscle group and every body part with a high frequency. It's about looking at your body and seeing where you're imbalanced, where you'd like more growth, or maybe you just want to boost your strength endurance of the pull-up. Maybe you've never gotten above 12 reps, and now you want to get to you know the point where you can do 20 or 25 reps. So mm-hmm. high-frequency training is specifically about either adding muscle size or boosting your strength endurance your capacity to recover more quickly, your, your local, your local capacity to recover more quickly. It's not about, it's not about maximal strength training. Um, it's just about looking at your body and saying, okay, I want to build up my arms or my calves or whatever. And, um, doing it in a systematic way where you start with less than you think you need. And then you have this progression plan put in place. Okay. Now, Chad, you mentioned something a few minutes ago, 
about seven or eight on a ten scale. I just want to clarify something for listeners. Uh, and our listeners that are strength coaches know this, and I apologize in advance, but we have to be careful when we define intensity um, because what Chad is talking about is more of a perceived exertion. Am I right? Exactly. So like seven or eight out of ten, uh, ten being maximal exertion. But in exercise physiology, um, and like when I asked Chad originally, you know, what percent load are we talking about? That's how it's technically defined, right? Intensity is percent of your one repetition maximum. So I, there's two different ways to look at intensity here. I think the lay person looks at intensity as what an academic would call perceived exertion. Um, whereas, you know, when you're set, when you're designing exercise programs, intensity is percent of your one rep max. That's just, that's all there's to it. So anyway, what you're saying then, Chad, is that we're talking about moderate, you know, to maybe a slightly higher than moderate amounts of perceived exertion, but probably also uh, nowhere near uh, 90% loads, things like that. Oh, no, no. Um, there's a reason why I didn't give a specific percentage. Um, the reason is because that for high-frequency training, if you're going to do an exercise uh, five or six times per week, it has to be convenient. That's why a lot of the upper body exercises revolve around um, moves that just require your body weight for resistance. Because I knew it'd be a, it would it'd be totally impractical to tell someone to, um, you know, do an exercise that requires a lot of equipment five, six, seven, eight times per week. So when you're talking about, let's say, let's take the pull up again as an example, and I said, okay, I'm talking here about 60% of your one rep max. Okay, now go do some pull-ups. You know, everyone be scratching their heads like, what the hell does that mean? You know, because it's not like this is a dumbbell where you can figure out what your one rep max is. And let's say it's 100 pounds for a row. And then, okay, 60% of the one rep max would be 60 pounds. And that's what I use for uh, doing the one-arm rows. Well, when you're doing bodyweight exercises, it's not that simple. That's why you have to use uh, the uh, rate of perceived exertion. I think that works well even with uh, loaded exercises too because – Here's the other factor. That seven or eight rating is constantly changing. And it depends on how recovered you are, the, how well you slept, your nutrition, and all that. And I'd rather just have them stay within that range, even if they're maybe doing, even if they maybe did uh, rep less their first set than they did the time before. I just want them to kind of stay within that range because that range is very easy for the nervous system to deal with and recover from. Because, again, what we're trying to do here is force the nervous system, force the muscle tissue, force all the physiological mechanisms to upregulate so you can recover faster, i.e. train more often. Because if there's one unequivocal statement that I don't care what camp any strength coach or personal trainer is in, everyone can agree on this, more workouts will lead to more growth. It's just a matter of being able to recover from those workouts, mm-hmm. and the workout must be sufficient to trigger muscle growth, and that's you know another issue that I'll get into. Right. Okay. Okay. So uh, let's get to um, the idea of this, of specificity. So um, what we were talking about before I hit record, everybody was um, isn't HFT then at odds with the specificity principle? Meaning, if I want to move huge percentage of my maximum, um, shouldn't I be training there? And I just thought maybe Chad could explain that a little bit. Well, in order to build maximal strength, 
there are two key ways you can do it. One is to lift heavy, and the other is to lift a submaximal load as explosively as possible, because either one of those will recruit the high threshold motor units, the biggest, strongest, largest motor units that have the most potential for size and strength gains. So if we look at it from that standpoint, then... Uh, as I said before, heavy training, especially with exercises like squats and deadlifts, they do not coalesce with high-frequency training because it's the gotcha. risk to your discs and connective tissue. You'll just break your body down. So if you're going to train more often, you have to scale back the intensity. But that doesn't mean that you won't get stronger. There's certainly ways that you can build max strength with an exercise that would be 60% of your one rep max going back to that um, number because that's kind of, if, if we're talking about a percentage, that's, you know, 60, 65, 70, that's kind of the range we're talking about here for the high-frequency training, most of the protocols I wrote up. So if you if you perform those um, reps, uh, specifically the concentric muscle shortening phase, if you try to accelerate the lift, while maintaining perfect form, you will tap into the high threshold motor units, and that can help with your max strength. However, if your goal is just pure, pure strength, um, just lifting a, a 1RM, if you're a power lifter, then HFT isn't necessarily the way that you would do all your training. It could certainly benefit you, though, because let's say maybe um, you could use more size in your triceps, because one thing that's... that's uh, you know, that's, that you can say is that um, adding muscle tissue then, you know, can help you with your strength. Now, of course, not all muscle tissue add will be the same. It depends on what, you know, a motor unit you're overloading. But some power lifters, you know, just might want to add size to a muscle group just for whatever reason. They could use it for that. However, you know, if you're trying to, uh, if you squat 600 pounds and you're trying to get to 650 pounds, I wouldn't have that person do, you know, six or seven sessions of the squat throughout the week with 60% of their one rep max and expect that to go up significantly. It's not for that. It's for it's for muscle growth and it's for uh, strength endurance. It's for, you know, boosting the number of pull-ups you can do or single leg squats or push-ups or handstand push-ups or, you know, things like that. And it's really great for athletes too because when you train more often – and especially the way I design the workouts, it forces your muscles to recover more quickly. It forces your uh, your physiology to, you know, adapt to the point where you can sustain your strength. And with someone like an MMA fighter or running back or an athlete like that, the ability to sustain your strength is really important. So in other words, you know, if you watch a MMA fight, you know, you got a big strong guy who comes out and he's super explosive for the first, you know, two minutes, and then he totally gasses out. Well, if he didn't get the job done in two minutes, he's in trouble. You know, you can make the argument that the guy who maybe had less strength at first but could sustain it for three to five rounds is going to be much more likely to be successful. So that's how I, you know, view the benefits of high-frequency training. It's really great for athletes who have to sustain their strength, and it's great for muscle growth, and it's great for strength endurance. Okay, so now I know you have a strong, um, you know, scientific, empirical kind of base for this, but at the same time, um, you had some practical influences, right? Did, I think in your book you mentioned Cirque du Soleil or uh, 
or gymnasts or, I mean, different examples of very muscular uh, people that are very muscular because of the frequency of their resistance, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I talk about this in the book. You know, one of the best statements I ever heard in grad school was from one of my professors where he said, science is the act of observing the world around you. And I think that's a fantastic statement that I think we can get really caught up in the minutia and all these physiological processes looking at it on paper and trying to figure out, you know, what's wrong or how to manipulate it. Instead, we should just look back and see what examples the world gives us. For instance, let's say a guy wanted bigger quadriceps. A lot of bodybuilders want bigger quadriceps. Well, one thing that I think we can all agree on is there's a lot of cyclists out there that have bigger quadriceps than competitive bodybuilders, and these cyclists have never lifted heavy with their legs in their life. So what I did is I looked at various athletes and figured out what muscle group was proportionally large and looked at the demands of the sport and then extrapolated information from there and kind of you know ran with that aspect of uh, designing these programs because the goal of HFT is fast muscle growth. So I looked at that, and for instance, the thighs of cyclists are predominantly large, or the lats of swimmers, or the deltoids of boxers, or the biceps of the gymnasts who perform the rings event. Now, if you look at the demands of all those sports, it's pretty clear that there's not one type of loading that's ideal, and that loading can shift for the muscle group. So, for instance, uh, the quadriceps do respond very well to high reps, very, very high reps, because you just need to look at a cyclist's thighs to appreciate that or a speed skater's thighs. The biceps, on the other hand, do not respond well to just a zillion reps. If they did, then elite college rowers would have the biggest biceps on the planet, but they don't. The gymnasts who perform the rings events, if, if you ask me, have the best biceps development on the planet. I mean, these guys are not in this sport to build huge biceps. They're in the sport to be good at the rings. And they right. It's build, an artifact of what they do. They build right. the most ex- impressive biceps I've ever seen. So I had to take all that. So, you know, it got a little tricky because it's like, okay, I know there's not one perfect loading mechanism. So what is in common? with a cyclist in his thighs or a rings gymnast in his biceps or a swimmer in his lats. Well, the one common factor is they all expose those muscle groups, those proportionally large muscle groups, to a very high volume of training through frequent training, through frequent workouts, sessions, practice, whatever you want to call it. So that's when I took that overriding concept and thought, okay, to me – If you have a laggy muscle group or want to grow a muscle quickly, you have to train it more often. You have to train it more than two or three times per week. And that was the impetus of of this. And when you were um, alluding to the Cirque du Soleil performance, at that point in my career, this was in 2000 or 2000 or 2001, when I went to see the Cirque du Soleil, I went to see Mystere and I saw the uh, Alexis brothers perform their act where they use the other brother's weight as uh, resistance. And I was just, I was just mesmerized by not only their performance, but their physiques and all these factors. And, and I, you know, thinking about their schedule, they do 10 shows per week, you know, and if you've seen this show, the mystere, I mean, just this little routine they do, I mean, it would leave most of us in the hospital, you know, for a week, you know, from mm-hmm. so much muscle damage. And they do this 10 times per week, 
multiple practices, God knows how many practices outside of this. And I don't care what supplement, what exotic regimen they're on, that should have been impossible for them to pull all that off. And it got me thinking at the time, it's like maybe, you know, if we build this up systematically, maybe we're underappreciating how fast the body can recover from workouts if we organize it correctly and don't, you know, absolutely drain the system. Well, I can tell you this, um, having just had Nick Bird on the show from Stu Phillips lab, you know, talking about high repetition uh, exercise and how basically 20 to 25 reps with just a 30 percent load uh, can maximize muscle protein synthesis. I see some parallels here, right, that there's different ways to turn on muscle protein synthesis, and it's not always lifting in the 85 to 95 percent of your one rep max range. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because that is one of the studies I quote in the HFT book. That's You're exactly right. They had subjects perform either four sets of failure with 30% of their one rep max or four sets of failure with 90% of the max. And they found, as you said, they measured protein synthesis and found that the group who trained with lighter loads to failure increased protein synthesis more than the heavy lifters. And that you know that was a really fascinating piece of research. It's, it's one of those things – that, you know, we know, uh, that, that I knew that certain, uh, protocols would build muscle very quickly, but it's nice, uh, with light loads, but it's nice to see a piece of research come along. Cause again, what I always go back to is just, you know, the thighs of cyclists, the thighs of, of speed skaters. It's like, you know, I think people just kind of skim over that. That's very, very powerful evidence. Because it's true, Chad. I, I love what you're saying because for years on this program, I've said, you, you know, scientists simply observe and record, you know, and that's exactly what you're saying. I think the best scientists, the, the groundbreaking scientists from decades ago or even hundreds of years ago, why were they groundbreakers? Because they witnessed things in nature and they meticulously recorded them and tried to figure out, you know, the, the mechanism behind why it's happening. And so that's almost like what you're saying. You're saying, let's. Let's remind each other to go back, and I think Mike Nelson is the one who sometimes will say, you know, regardless of how elegant the mechanism, eventually you got to look at the outcome, you know, or you have to look at actually what's happening, or you, you know, look and see what's happening, and that's kind of what you've done. You've looked at the, you know, um, regular world outside of a lab, and and like you said, then it's nice to see Nick Bird and and Stu Phillips and those guys actually following up. By the way, just to remind listeners. You might say, oh, well, that's just after one workout. But no, Stu was talking about how they literally trained one thigh with the 30% loads and the other side with a much heavier, and the hypertrophy was comparable. So, I mean, if you're a power lifter, like Chad's saying, maybe not the best approach, except I think Rob and I and, and Phil, we all agree that there's a time even for the pure strength athlete to build a bigger engine. Definitely. You know. Definitely. So, and you yeah. can take those principles of HFT – and uh, make it work with lighter loads and still tap into the largest motor units. Uh, what they did, uh, you know, they wanted to take two extremes, uh, 90% and 30%, but there is a happy medium there too. So, you know, if a powerlifter came to me and said he wanted to increase the size of his quadriceps, you know, outside of his competition season and wanted to use high-frequency training, then there is a way to do it. You know, there is a way you could, if you try to, if you use a little bit heavier load and a little bit lower volume and accelerate the concentric phase, you can get that happy medium where you will be able to train more frequently 
you will turn trigger that protein synthesis and you won't uh, overwhelm the nervous system. Right. Now, we are almost out of time, but um, I will say this. Um, after talking to you about this and after talking to Nick Bird recently, the high-frequency thing does seem to be, at least as far as muscle hypertrophy goes, the logical next step in a lot of ways. I mean, if three or four sets, you know, um, let's say to, to failure, like what Nick was talking about, 20, 25 repetitions, whatever, if that maximizes muscle protein synthesis, it does make one wonder why they're spending two hours in the gym continuing to trash, you know, the biceps, let's say, you know, uh, when instead it, w it could be very interesting. Maximize muscle protein synthesis. Uh, there's not a huge amount of recovery necessary because you've done three or four sets. Um, and then do it again. And then do it again. And again, as soon as possible to try to keep protein synthesis peaked out, right? And, and like you said, then you look at other sports and you see bodies that are um, hypermuscular because essentially that's what they're doing as part of their sport. Absolutely. Look, yeah. Lonnie, we both know that if doing 100 sets of curls in one day could add an inch to your biceps – then we all would have found time to do it. But there's an absolute limit to how much growth you can trigger in a workout. I mean, everyone agrees on that. It's, as I said, we'd all be doing 100 sets in one workout for a body part if, if it really made it grow bigger. So the way I look at it is I go the opposite end of the spectrum with HFT. What is sufficient? What is sufficient to trigger protein synthesis? And I think I've come up with really good numbers from all the data I've collected over the last 17 years. This is what's sufficient. And as you said, let the body recover and then force it to do it again. You know, and do it again. Four hours later. Yep. yep. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, we are out of time, brother. So I want to thank you for being on. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure, Lonnie. I love talking to you, and I'll come on anytime. Oh, that's awesome. I, I love to talk shop. Um, and, yeah, that's definitely what we'll do. Maybe we'll uh, – Look at some specifics about the book or how your training philosophies have evolved or even just, you know, pick up some new topic and just, um, you know, uh, have fun with some gym talk. So Absolutely. Okay. Anytime. All right. Listeners, I'd like to point out that because Chad is a stand-up guy and he's really interested in the science, he failed to mention actually where you can buy his new book. Uh, it's hftmuscle.com. And as I understand it, it's currently $50 off. So thanks for checking that website out. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes, everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, 
practical applications and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the state-of-the-art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the liter literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here, I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however, obviously I haven't done it for that purpose. I did it because like you, I wanna have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what a, perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.